You're listening to Stand Out with Ian O'Connell. Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry. Before we start the show this week, I want to take a minute or two to mention something that happened earlier last week. On Thursday, we heard the devastating news that the beautiful Lindsay Bennett sadly passed away after fighting her battle with cervical cancer since 2017. Kind, caring, brave, strong, beautiful and inspiring are just a few words I have seen people using as tributes continue to pour in as people pay their respects. I was lucky enough to interview Lindsay right here on my show just a couple of weeks ago. It's crazy sitting here in the studio knowing I was interviewing her in June. It's an interview that has a special place in my heart and it's an interview that I got the biggest feedback from the listeners. Life is full of blessings we take for granted, yet so often we dwell on what we don't have. Appreciate what you already have and be grateful because sometimes we don't appreciate what we have until they become the things we had. My thoughts and prayers are with Lindsay's family and friends and most importantly her two little girls Zoe and Haley. Rest in peace Lindsay. Now you're very welcome to the show tonight. I hope I find you well on this Wednesday evening. Tis a miserable old few days out there with the rain and everything so do you know what we call it? Typical Ireland weather. Hopefully this show will bring, bring a bit of warmth to you and hopefully you enjoy it. Throw the feet up by the fire, turn on the radiator. I know sure we're all trying to, to save electricity and and gas and everything these days but sure look, we'll drive on and hopefully I'll bring a bit of a, a, a smile to your face on this Wednesday evening. I'm delighted to say that my guest this week on Stand Out with myself Ian O'Connell is Damien Brown. A lot of you might know Damien from the rugby field playing rugby but in recent weeks his name has been all over the news for a completely different reason. Damien became the first person ever to row from New York City all the way to Galway after 112 days at sea. Sit back and enjoy the show. Damien, thanks a million for, for coming on today. Ian, thanks for the invite. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, with all my guests, I um, I don't know if you've heard any of the interviews, but I like to bring them back to, to when they were growing up and to what it was, it was like. You're, you're mad into sports, I I suppose, where are you growing up? Yeah, so um, I, I'm from Renmore, just um, on the way into Gow City, and uh, it's pretty much a stone's throw from Gowegians Rugby Club. So um, the estate where I live, uh, kind of everyone was in and around three or four or five years of each other. So there used to be this kind of troop of young fellas um, kind of going up to Galwegians on a Saturday morning. So one of those Saturday mornings as an 11-year-old, I just found myself in that troop and uh, kind of, you could say the rest is history. Uh, a couple hours later, I got, uh, I fully committed to a tackle, um, ended up getting the ball carrier's kind of trailing boot into my jaw and felt this kind of reverberation of um, sensations through my nervous system, through my body, and just knew I'd found my sport. In that nanoseconds, you know, I just, I loved everything about that, the commitment, full commitment to the tackle, um, the unknown of it, and the, um, yeah, the sensations that <laughs> for some people might not be a, a positive thing, but for me, for some reason, it just seemed to be, and, yeah, uh, and that was that. Then I kind of became obsessed with the sport of rugby, and 
um, uh, thankfully, I suppose, and very gratefully, was able to make it my career for um, toward the start of my adult life. And um, and I suppose rowing did that was that something at a young age you were into? Believe it or not, it wasn't at all. Uh, I didn't. Um, I hadn't a Scoobies about rowing or anything to do with rowing up until about five years ago. Uh, it was never. So uh, I went to the Bish Secondary School in Galway City and rowing actually was a big thing. And I had a couple of very close friends who were rowers, but I never had any kind of pull towards it. I was just so... Um, um, obsessed again by uh, by rugby and that was kind of where all my focus went you know and I never even considered rowing until uh, I saw a documentary um, uh, by two English guys called James Cracknell and Ben Fogel um, and they had rowed across the Atlantic and, uh, and um, I kind of yeah, I just knew there and then watching that that it was something I would like to try. But it was very much a case of post-rugby, you know, post my career. I, I, I definitely um, was uh, driven to get the absolute most out of my rugby career. And, and every kind of uh, year I could, at least in every season I could, um, uh, I wanted to continue that journey. But once that was over, that was something I wanted to do, which was grow the Atlantic. And you were saying about um about rugby there. You were you were cap by Ireland at under twenty one level, were you? That's right. Yeah, I lucky enough to get caps at under nineteen, under twenty one, and then a couple other sides like development and uh, uh, A as well. Irish A went on a tour to um, North America uh, called the Churchill Cup at the time. Uh, honestly, it was a bit of a jolly. Uh, <laughs> I don't think the rugby was too serious. Oh, like, sorry, I know the rugby wasn't too serious. It was just, it was one of the best social tours, if not the best social tour I was ever on. And just a great group of uh, people. That was in 2006, and it was the end of a very long season. Um, and yeah, we played three games out there, but it was just, it was more of a, like I said, more of a social thing. Uh, so that was, that was my kind of the end of my Irish rugby. Uh, representative days um it was was it at 2001 then you got the the contract with connect was it uh around that time yeah i was uh 20 so i sorry i played my first game as 20 but i had been in the squad for a year or so before that so uh yeah that was the start of uh so what was that it was probably actually 90 probably 2000 um and played there for four seasons um, before moving to the UK and playing with Northampton for another four seasons. So Connacht was where it all started for me. Uh, played all the representative stuff um, and then uh, was lucky enough to break into the senior team at a young age, you know, 1920, when there, there really wasn't that much uh, competition, you know, because rugby was only professional at that point for about five years. There wasn't the depth of um, players uh, in every position. So I was kind of, uh, again, very fortunate to be almost fast-tracked into the system and, and to be playing, you know, major games at the time, at least major games for Connacht as a 19, 20-year-old, you know. So I kind of got a, um, a 
yeah, a, an insight very early in my career into the demands of professional rugby. Um, post rugby, then you um your your love for kind of extreme sports and stuff. I was reading on an article that you when you were twelve or something you crept away to to climb cliff somewhere was um where did your love for that kind of stuff in extreme sports come oh that story is a family heirloom at this point uh <laughs> we're up we're up in malin up in malin head uh and i went missing we were just you know we were on ho- family holidays and we we're just visiting obviously the the attraction if you want and uh I just wanted a closer look at the actual tip of Ireland, you know, the northern tip of it. And Jesus, my my dad is a very placid man. Uh, I've never seen him so bloody uh, angry in my life. And I think it marked everyone because he went from his usual placid self to, you know, fuming like. But um, yeah, so it, it comes from rugby, really, like been kind of a discovering the um, power of pushing my body and my mind or the empowerment of it at least and the uh, rewards of that living that way you know so when you are the person pushing yourself uh, when you are in control and you're able to kind of be um, disciplined and have a work ethic and have um, a, a, a level of um, I suppose a uh, mindset of aggression and resilience and um, uh, one that is um, uh, directed towards realizing your full potential and pursuing that. So that came, I learned that through the demands of rugby. Obviously, the sport is highly pressurized. And um, and then I took kind of responsibility for my own physical preparation in a big way within that pressurized environment and and was constantly looking for ways to uh, improve as a rugby player and get the most out of myself and you know when I was uh, living that way um, it gave me great rewards so uh, it was clear to me that when I was going to retire uh, or that I was going to retire and I wanted to continue to pursue that way of living you know continually push my body and my mind to um it's perceived edges and and beyond so uh the the kind of clear way for me to do that through my own passions and uh, what was purposeful for me was uh becoming an extreme adventurer because i just i love like i'm I'm very um passionate about the planet and traveling around and seeing all the sights and sounds and smells and uh, cultures and people and and uh ingrating um delving into those and you know giving myself a, a short but true window into what the, those cultures and people uh, and their way of life is like so you put those two things together the, the the drive to push myself and my body and my mind uh, and then the passion for traveling the planet and discovering every corner of it it kind of it, you know the two of those things together kind of formed into that extreme adventure piece so that's kind of where that um, that drive to, you know, um, do extreme things comes from. I, I, I'd i be the same as you know, when, like, even when I'm on holidays and stuff, I love kind of seeing the different cultures and, and what they do and even watching documentaries there on, on wildlife and stuff. I could watch them all day long. Do you know when you were playing rugby, even for 
talking to you for the last 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I kind of get the impression you were obviously very driven and motivated. Would you have been, because I speak to a lot of people like that, and they're always their own biggest critic when they're they're playing. Are you hard on yourself, like through your career or even now? I'm I'm very honest, <laughs> um, and I think if you're honest with yourself, uh, it's a very hard thing to be um, because we almost have biases to to not be uh, have that kind of brutal honesty with ourselves, but. I find it's a very um, empowered place to function out of and to live out of, and it serves me very well. So that means sometimes that I have to be very hard on myself, and um, sometimes I don't have to be very hard on myself. You know, I could like, I can, um, if I kind of, if my standards, if I uphold my standards and live to my values and practice those values and embody my philosophies that I have. Um, well, then I can sit back and bask in the effort and the uh, success of that. And that's kind of where I find myself at right now because of coming off the, the last expedition. Uh, I, I feel I, um, I, I lived I, the way on board the boat. I lived the way I wanted to live and I, I was the person I um, strive to be. And, um, and that means that I can, you know, on a very unconscious level i just I, i'm very happy and content with the way it all went but sometimes to be to find that place you have to be really hard on yourself and and yeah i do i do have uh times where you know i don't take my own shit you know and yeah. there's uh and there's plenty of times where it comes up you know the the kind of uh more insecure weaker side of yourself that just wants it easy and wants to take a day off, and I'm like, not, not today. I'm not, I'm not adhering to that. I'm not, I'm not letting the foot off the gas. And and it, it just, it's important to be able to recognize that, and then to work against it. And I think it's a great way to be honest with yourself. And like you said, it's the the reward you get then at the at the ends of whatever you 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 do strive for. Um, I know your name obviously has been in the news for the the rowing across from New York and stuff lately but I wanted to touch on a few things before that even like stuff that people mightn't have heard of as much as the recent um, adventure you've done you've done a kind of a marathon in the the Sahara Desert they're going back a while do you want to tell me a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So it's a thing called the Marathon des Sables, which means the Marathon of the Dunes and it's based in the Sahara Desert it happens every year. It's kind of like a one of the original ultra marathons. So it's um, roughly 250 kilometers over six days. And that kind of translates into the equivalent of six marathons over six days, even though that's not the way they set it out. Basically, uh, every year, it's kind of a very similar framework, only the stages are different um, routes. But it's the first three days are kind of below a marathon length, you know, maybe four, five, six kilometers. And then stage four is always a double marathon. So it's like whatever that is, 52.53.6 or two miles or 80 something kilometers. And then the fifth stage is always a marathon length. And then the sixth stage is always a kind of a very short charity stage. So basically it's it's really over five days 
Um, and it's known as the world's toughest foot race. Now, it's probably not, no, it's definitely not because, um, you know, it's 36 years old this year. So there's lots of things, you know, typically humans are always looking for more, right? And in that 36 years that the Mountain Disable has been about, there's races that have been um, uh, conceived and are, are now um, run that are much more difficult. But they got in there really early with that marketing piece and they call themselves the world's toughest foot race. And uh, that's not to say it isn't hard. Of course, it is very hard. So basically, from the very uh, first day, the minute as you stand on the start line, you have everything on your back to survive the whole six days. So all your food, all your cooking utensils, all your bedding, all your clothes and anything else you need for the, the six days. And, and that's in a backpack. Um, and then uh, they give you water uh, every. So the, the race, the MDS, the Mountain de Sable, they give you water every day. Uh, sorry, not every day, every checkpoint. And there's a number of checkpoints in each stage um, uh, for every day stage. Um, and, you know, you're talking about my year at least. I think it hit about 45, 46 degrees. It's normally run around um, April, April time. So it's not the height of summer, but still, you know, I think, I think they run at that time of year because it's it's safer. Um, but I, I have heard that it has hit you know fifty plus degrees um, some years. But the year I did it, which was two thousand sixteen, it was we got to about forty five, forty six degrees. So still no joke, right? Um, and roughly about eleven hundred, twelve hundred people started every year, and again, very roughly about nine hundred, nine hundred and fifty finished. So there's always a kind of pretty significant dropout rate. Um, yeah, and you sleep in a, a Berber tent every night, which they do something really cool in that race, actually, where they put um, the nationalities. So they put all the English in tents together. They put all the Irish in tents together, all the Americans in tents together. So, you know, the Irish sense of humor is very self-deprecating, you know, and when you're going through something really difficult like that, it, it couldn't be better suited to the um situation so we had some laugh in our tent you know just kind of you know slagging each other through the misery we were going through uh, and it was great to do that with fellow kind of countrymen so yeah it was a really good experience and uh um yeah something that you know uh it mightn't be the last time i do it so it's unreal um unreal numbers like you said meeting up with the the Irish in the same tent probably didn't make it easier, but kind of just the Irish humor made it a bit more, a bit more easy flowing. Um, yeah. Exactly. Speaking of um other stuff, you you done five of the seven um summits of the world, did you? That's right. Yeah. So the seven summits is a um, it's kind of a well known mountaineering feat where people try and climb the highest mountain on each continent, you know, the seven continents. So currently, so I set out uh, to do all seven and I've attempted six. I've summited five. Um, uh, so I summited uh, firstly Kilimanjaro, which is Africa's highest, Elberis, which is Europe's highest. It's in um, Russia. And then uh, the two North and South American mountains, Aconcagua and Denali. And then I did one in um, uh, Western Papa, 
which is basically the oceanic continent's highest mountain. It's called uh, Karsten's Pyramid. It's in the depths of this island. So you have the Papua New Guinea islands, but the the western half of that, it belongs to Indonesia. And it's very remote. um, And it did that a few years ago. Uh, But it's not a particularly taxing mountain. It's the most technical in terms of actually the climbing that goes on, but it's not. um, It's only like two or three days and then last year i attempted mount everest um but it was during the uh, the height of the delta variant of covid really? and obviously that yeah so and that originated in um, india if you remember and nepal has open borders with india so as this thing was going around like wildfire in india the indian people were flooding into Nepal so then it got into Nepal in a big way and eventually you know found because it was so contagious found its way up to base camp because like base camp at Everest is like an anthill you know there's people coming and going constantly every day there's porters there's guides there's climbers there's people bringing in supplies that have to be kind of you know that are on yaks and donkeys and then you have helicopters coming and going so it's it's this kind of moving um, like a village it's like a village yeah exactly that there's a thousand people there um so so covid got in and uh, i eventually i ended up getting covid while i was there so as you can imagine a respiratory illness at 5300 meters above sea level is far from ideal um i got i and some of my teammates got evacuated back to Kathmandu when we tested positive uh, got sequestered in a hotel for 10 days, uh, eventually overcame the COVID and tested negative and flew back to um, base camp. But I was in a, a pretty compromised place. You know, I was still recovering from the illness. And, you know, I, even though I did a rotation up to camp two, so up to about 6,600 meters on the mountain, I, I really, like, I really, really struggled. I was in a, um, I just had no energy. Like I never felt fatigue. Like it, it was just incredible. Like the the um, the depths of the fatigue that coursed through me, and it would take me. You know, I, I as we were climbing through, say some of the glacier, and we'd have to glacier points, and we'd have to go up a kind of steep ladder or some uh, steep lines. Uh, when I'd get to the top, it would take me about twenty minutes to recover. I'd have to sit down. And uh, and just slowly try and control my breathing because I just feel so fatigued, you know. But um, yeah. So I did my rotation, came back down to base camp, and uh, and and you know I wasn't feeling very confident, but I just thought if I give myself some time to recover and um, acclimate a little bit better and let the the remnants of COVID leave me. Um, at least I'll give it a go, you know, I'll, I'll at least I'll try to get to the top. And uh, and about seven or eight or nine days passed, and I started to build a little bit of confidence, started to feel a bit stronger, started to recover, started to regain some of my capacities, and, you know, went on a few um, uh, hikes around base camp up to like 6,000 meters and felt pretty good. And, you know, I was like, right, we'll... Um, you know, at least I'll give this thing a go. And we were ready to leave uh, on our summit rotation. So normally it takes about five days to go from base camp to the um, to summit of Everest and then come back. That so, just puts yeah. it into perspective how, how big it actually is, doesn't it? 
Oh yeah, no, it's it's it really is monstrous like. And uh yeah, I was ready to go with my Sherpa and we were kind of geared up and all that nervous energy was flowing through me and it was like game day, right? Let's go, let's give this the best shot possible at least. And we literally got a tap on the shoulder just before we were about to leave. Um, lad, sorry to tell you, but um we just talked to the head Sherpa at Camp 2 and Camp 4, and uh, everybody up there is testing positive for COVID. So we're pulling them all off the mountain. We're going to retest everyone down here at base camp. And basically, they did that, and two days later, they closed down the expedition. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, 95% of the uh, Sherpa had COVID, so, you know, you couldn't risk uh, them. And that was it, yeah. Went home with my kind of... Lots of regrets, I suppose, but um, yeah, the mountain's not going anywhere, and I might get another chance at it. Um, I'll move on to the the latest adventure and the the one that everybody has been keeping an eye on all the time. You were you were, you know, at sea and everything. Do you want to tell me a bit about the the latest adventure going from New York to to Galway and how did it how did it actually come to fruition? How did you think of doing it? So um, that was actually my second ocean row. Uh, and I did one, the first one I did was a solo ocean row from uh, the Canary Islands to Antigua. Um, and that was part of a race that happens annually called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And in that race, there's boats uh, from all the way from five person boats down to solos. And I was one of five solos in that race. Um, it was about 30 odd boats. And um, I, I I got to the other side. It took 63 days, and it was an amazing experience, very challenging. But within that race, there was another um, uh, boat of four people from Antigua, uh, the small little island in the Caribbean. So when I arrived into uh, Antigua, it was a great you know, celebrations. And I did something similar as I did with this row. I shared kind of uh, clips um, on my social media so people were able to follow it and you know it was a nice buzz um, and when I arrived there was still a very strong um, remnants of the uh, the impact that that four person boat from Antigua had, had on its country like everybody I met was talking about the four guys um, that had like, they arrived about 30 days before me because obviously they're four and they had a fast boat and all that. So uh, I started to think like, okay, so like I saw that amazing impact they had. And I, I knew that uh, you can row like the Atlantic, the other way, the other direction. That was much more challenging, much more difficult. Um, but I thought, like, Jesus, I could actually row into my hometown here. Like, that's actually a possibility. You know, and there's very few people. Well, firstly, there's very few um, oceans that can be rowed in a certain direction, right, because of weather conditions. And, and the power of a, uh, an ocean rowing boat is so uh, minimal, you know, that you, you just won't be able to work against certain winds or certain currents. But Galway and the west coast of Ireland is actually um possible now it's very very difficult but it's possible so that's kind of where the seed came from and then i started working on it more and researching it more and realizing that uh, as that research went on it kind of grew into more of a uh 
a purpose rather than a, a project, if you get me. Like so, I just became very um, passionate, and uh, it may, had a lot of meaning for me uh, to achieve this. Uh, well, bring about firstly this um, attempt, and secondly, achieve what I wanted to achieve, which was row from New York to Galway. And why New York? Because the very first ocean row ever attempted was two Norwegians that left New York and landed in the this very south of the UK called the Silly Isles. Uh, so there was almost a um, a nod, I suppose, to the historical um, uh, forebearers of ocean rowing in that because New York is actually the hardest place you can leave from on that uh, east coast of America or Canada. Like you can go you know, up to uh, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia and leave from there. And it cuts out about a thousand kilometers of the row. But, you know, I, I'm i very much of the mindset that uh, the harder, the better. You know, the harder it is, the deeper you have to dig, the more challenge you have to go through, the greater the better rewards. The reward would be then at the end. Exactly. Exactly that. So so it made perfect sense for me to write New York to go away and... Uh, it's it's basically one of the hard like in, on a very broad level you could say it's one of the hardest challenges on the planet so perfect let's go with that <laughs> crazy even to think to think about it and um, you left with with a guy Fer, Fergus was it that's and right he had to to drop out not too long into did you did it even cross your mind to say right I'm gonna go with him and not do it didn't even cross my mind i i kind of uh, a few people said it to me you know true text message and that when we you know when we put it out there that Gussie was off the boat and i was like oh yeah no didn't even didn't even occur to me uh i was very you know coming back to the whole meaning and purpose behind the expedition i was very uh driven to make it happen uh, i had prepared very uh diligently and and in a very kind of uh, extreme way to be ready and prepared to make it happen and my whole mindset was like nothing nothing within my control is going to stop me getting across this ocean so uh, I said that to myself <laughs> many many times as I went across almost kind of reaffirming the mindset to myself because there was plenty of doubts you know it got really really dark and negative and hard at times and you know you got to be able to bring yourself back to you know, a positive, at least a, a self-talk that is uh, empowering. And that, that's just what I kept saying to myself. So, yeah, no, I never, never registered when Gussie had to leave that I would leave to. Never, never crossed the, the mind. I'm fascinated by the actual, the, the boat itself. I wanted to ask you about, you can see in the boat, there's like two kind of, I suppose, mini cabins. You, you, you could say, what was the sleeping situation like? And what would it be like if, there was a bad storm. Would you just go into the, the cabin or like sleeping? How how was it? Yeah. So as you said, there's two cabins. Uh, one of them is uh, your main cabin where you have your like the bed. So basically the whole inside of that cabin is like a vinyl kind of thick vinyl mattress. And that's where you just kind of just bed down and sleep um when given the when given time and then you have all your electrics in there as well and your desalinating unit you know so you have a unit on board that sucks up the seawater and runs through a load of filters and gives you drinkable water oh, really uh, yeah because if you think about it like 
water is heavy, right? And you can't, you couldn't really fill the boat with water because it'd just be way too heavy to row. So you need this uh, unit on board that'll give you, give me about six liters of water in an hour when you put it At on. At least you so, never run out of water. No, exactly. So that you can imagine the importance of that unit like that, you know, um, that it stays, it doesn't break and it doesn't um, malfunction, you know, because <laughs> otherwise you're in big trouble. Otherwise, like we have backups for backups for backups. Like we have a, we, we would have been able to manually, uh, they call it make water. We would have been able to manually make water, but it, that means that when you're meant to be resting, they have to be pumping this unit to to um to create the drinkable water so that would have been a nightmare but thankfully the desalinator worked the whole way across so yeah and within there you have like i said all your electrics as well and, and that's where you sleep and that's where both of us actually slept at the same time when we were on a thing called power anchor which is like the anchor you use when the uh, ocean is too deep to use a traditional ground anchor and that's just a parachute that um uh, you attach to the boat and it sits under the water and it holds about two tons of water within the parachute. So that stops you getting blown backwards too far when you're in like a big kind of headwind or uh, or even a storm. Uh, but what that means is both people have to be in the cabin and it's, it is particularly small. So when both people are in there, you're basically lying on top of each other. Like, you know, there's it's that small. So as a one person, it's fine. You know, it's 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 small, but it's manageable. When both people are in there, it's it's particularly uncomfortable, and it's particularly uncomfortable for a couple of reasons. Okay, the space is very small, and you're touching each other, and boats get knocked around, so you're constantly getting knocked around as well together. But also, the cabin hatches have to be closed because you can't get any water in there. And that first kind of month or six weeks, it was really hot because it was summer, right, uh, at lower latitudes. So inside that cabin, where there's no airflow because the cabin hatches are shut, it gets to about 40 degrees. So Jesus the two of you are on top of each other. There's no airflow, and it's about 40 degrees. Like So it's really claustrophobic, and you're trying to sleep. And you could be in there. I think me and Gussie spent 13, 14 hours in there together. Like So it's, it's no fun. No fun at all. I know, obviously, physically demanding, but I'm sure it was even more mentally demanding then 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 physically at times did you feel that when you were when you were sharing your journey on social media did you kind of feel that you had company with you in like i don't know how to describe it but did you feel like you weren't alone that there was loads of people following you and you were able to communicate with them yeah like it's it's a it's an outlet right to um as you said you're communicating with somebody when you do that so it's rather than if you think about the opposite to that, it's just been alone and really not saying any words for months. Like, you know, you might, okay, you might talk to yourself a little bit, you might sing or something, but you wouldn't say much like so. So this was a way for me to kind of get out the frustration and the angst and the, the story that was unfolding and the, the truth and the reality of that. And that's cathartic, you know, so that helped a lot. Um, I also gave myself, so we had a project phone, you know, and that was the thing we were recording all our videos on. And the, the, it was linked up to a system where um, a broadband satellite uplink where we could then uh, send it back through WhatsApp. But I, I also gave myself the little kind of um, 
uh, what would you say, is it a treat maybe of having uh, Instagram, the Instagram app on the phone. Uh, so every now and again, I would just click in and see, like I, I didn't post anything. Somebody else was doing all the posting and all that sort of stuff. All I was doing was recording and writing the caption and telling the story. But uh, every now and again, I'd click in and read some of the comments. And, and that helped a lot. It was like a dopamine hit, you know, uh, a little uplift, you know, when you'd see what people were saying and that. So that was that was something that uh, I hadn't done before, which kind of worked well this time. And um, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I've heard you say in interviews, is that Noctul Miles or? What's that? Noctul Miles or something. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. What? It's kind of the the word you'd use for miles out at sea. How many yeah. miles exactly did you cover for the whole thing? Oh, nautical miles. Nautical, that's it, yeah. Yeah, I covered, I think people are telling me, 3,450 nautical miles. So uh, uh, a nautical mile is 1.1 uh, uh, ground uh, land miles. So whatever that works out at, probably 3,800 miles and five five point five thousand four hundred kilometers, something like that. Yeah, a <laughs> long way. Right. I, I, I'm tired listening, listening to you. What was the feeling when you when you spotted spotted was it Skellig Michael or even uh, uh, the yeah. coast of Ireland? That must have that must have been unbelievable. What was going through your head? I wasn't expecting it uh, because. I, I'd been on power anchor for that point at, for four days and been blown. There was these north um, westerly winds that were blowing me southeast. So I, at one point I was like 200 kilometers from Ireland. But over the course of that four days, I was been OK. I was been blown away from Galway, but I was still been blown towards Ireland. So. You know, I woke up that morning um, and I, I the first thing I do is check the conditions to see if I can pull in the power anchor. And when I went out, I was like, is that land? And sure enough, because you have the, it was like dawn, right? So it's the it's just a change of from dark to light. And you're kind of trying to make out uh, between the low cloud cover is that and behind it, you could see the sun kind of rising. And then you could see the outline of Skellig Michael. And then on, well, on closer inspection, a bit to the north, I could see the Kerry coast. And I was like, come on, land, land, <laughs> finally. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. And what, what a thing to, for the first piece of land for you to see, like Skellig Michael. And it's iconic, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was just an amazing moment. And uh, very relieved. Relieved, but also... It's still land, right? And it's it's actually a, a threat in a way, like, you know, because now you're close to something that you can actually hit. Yeah, so uh, you got to be, uh, as well as uh, relieved, you also got to be vigilant and start to, you, you know, make kind of decisions based on that piece of information that, okay, it's land, but like, I got to get north here. And I remember uh, about, I had, I think, 30 hours of good weather before this, um, um, uh, there was a, uh, I think it was a yellow or orange weather warning came in with where there was uh, four, uh, force eight and force nine winds. So that meant I was going to have to go back on power anchor. So what I had to do was get um, as far north in that 30 miles as I could. And I remember at one point only been about eight nautical miles from um, 
Valencia. Uh, and like that's not good news. Like when you're only eight miles and you have force eight, force nine um, winds coming in, you know, a matter of hours. So I had to get uh, as far north as I could. I had to get past that Dingle Peninsula and try and get into a, a space where I had a bit more room to maneuver. So if I was blown um, towards Ireland, which was going, which was going to happen, at least there wasn't, you know, the the tip of the peninsula. At least I could kind of go north of the peninsula and further in towards Finnish. And that's the way it worked out, thankfully. But uh, it took a lot of work to get to that point. Unrolled. All I can say is, is fair play to you. It's um, <laughs> it's some achievement then, and I appreciate you coming on today and out to to tell me because I know I was saying it to the lads inside and working, and they were delighted to 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 hear they were were coming on. So thanks a million for coming on today, Damien. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, unfortunately, that's all we have time for tonight. I hope you all enjoyed the show, and I appreciate you tuning in as always. A massive thanks to Damien Brown for coming on today and having a chat about his story and it's it's truly remarkable what he achieved going from New York City all the way over to Galway on a boat. It begs beyond belief really to, to think that he, he done it. Imagine the, the waves and the tough nights away from family and missing occasions, birthdays and everything so it was definitely a tough tough task as I can you can you can tell like from from his own his own story, the way he's telling it, that that he did have his own tough time. So, big um, big up to him for doing that, and it's unbelievable what he achieved. You can contact me through my Instagram, enoconnell321, or through my email address, ioconnell at radiocarry.ie. Stay tuned in to Radio Kerry because Brian Priestley is up next with That's Jazz. I'll be back at the same time next Wednesday night from 8 to 9pm. Until then, stay safe and mind yourself. You're listening to Stand Out with Ian O'Connell. Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry.